It's good to see everyone here this morning. Thankful you've chosen to be with us. If you're a guest today, we want you to know that you're welcome. We invite you to be with us here at Midway at every opportunity that you possibly have. If you have your Bible this morning, we'll go ahead and jump right into our lesson. Go ahead and be opening up to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to be spending our time there this morning. But as you're turning there, I want you to think about four things that, or four instances of, of things that have happened to young people that, that are just atrocious. Just a few years ago now, there was a mother who in Missouri brought her 23-month-old child to the hospital. And she was arrested there because she admitted to hitting the child with a 12-inch cast iron skillet. You know, sometimes we kid about husbands getting hit with their wife, by their wives with a skillet, you know. That's funny, but it's not funny when you start beating on a little baby, a little child, 23 months old. A Texas father was arrested after admitting to carving a pentagram, that's one of those five-sided stars, into the back of his six-year-old son with a box cutter. That's just hard to believe that anyone could do something like that. A Minnesota father was arrested and admitted to abusing his seven-week-old daughter. Twenty-one broken bones. Seven broken ribs as well as the left clavicle, the left humerus, the left femur, the left tibia, the left fibula, uh, the right tibia and fibula, as well as the skull. How could you do it to one so small? And then there's this one. A Florida mother and her boyfriend were arrested after a 17-month-old toddler was severely burned and beaten. The boyfriend used his fist to smash the baby's chest and back and took a blow dryer and burned his skin before taking hot cooking oil and pouring it on his head, torso, and genitals. Unbelievable. But there are hundreds of people throughout our world, in the United States as well as abroad, who on a regular basis face abuse. It doesn't make any difference if they're young if they're old or if they're middle-aged, because abuse stretches across all generations. And so today we want to talk about what the Bible has to say in regard to abuse. I want us to understand this morning as we begin our lesson that abuse takes many forms. And as we think about the forms this morning, we simply know that one of the most obvious and easiest to recognize is when abuse takes the form of the physical, the four instances that I mentioned as we began our study this morning have to do with physical abuse of, of children, in these cases, little bitty babies as well as toddlers. And, and so when we're thinking about physical abuse, we're thinking about punching and slapping and kicking and pulling hair and, and uh, uh, even threatening to use a weapon as well as the scalding and the burning and all of these kinds of things. I once knew a young man who his mother took him and set him on a hot stove, put him up there and made him sit on the hot stove. And so it's just amazing what 
people are capable of doing when it comes to the physical realm. But not only do you have physical abuse, you also have emotional abuse. And it's not as easy to spot because there are a lot of times none of the outward signs that people uh, display. There are no bruises or broken bones from some of these things. And so it's harder to detect. And yet many of the victims of emotional abuse say that it hurts more than the physical abuse. They could take better someone breaking a bone or hitting them or doing some kind of physical thing to them rather than having the words that come out of the mouths. Emotional abuse includes insults and belittling and cursing and excessive jealousy and control as well as threats, threats of punishment, threats of harm, and even threats of death. And so you could go on and on and on and and you can think about how people would be afraid of physically being hurt but at the same time you have these things that are being held over the heads of, uh, of young people or husbands or wives or even older folks who, who have grown too old to defend themselves in a lot of ways how that they may be abused by words or, or by, by actions of others that, that would uh, threaten to bring harm to them and so there's that emotional abuse but then not only is, do we have that, but there is what we might call economic abuse as well. When we think about economic uh, abuse, we're thinking about abuse that takes place a lot of times in marriages, especially if the wife is a stay-at-home mother. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of an abuse in which the, the father, the husband, or perhaps it could go the other way where the, the one of the spouses uh, abuses the other by giving them little or no money, little or no control over finances. And for every penny that is to be spent on food and in the house, you know, the, uh, the, they, they just basically have to beg for these kinds of things. The, the abuser controls the one who's being abused uh, by giving them you know, no control and by belittling them uh, when they do use resources. Now, that's not to say that people don't go through hard times and you don't have to pinch pennies. That's not the same thing. But a lot of times it happens in families where the pennies are not having to be pinched, where there is sufficient to be used, and yet one simply uses that to control the other. But then, not only do you have the abuse in the other first three, but you have what we might term and what has been called sexual abuse. Any sexual contact that is uh, uh, perpetrated against a, a child, a minor, uh, can be considered sexual abuse. And, and, of course, we don't have to spend a lot of time in dealing with that. We understand that that happens. It has become more and more common, or at least uh, brought more and more out into the open uh, in, in recent years, I guess you might say, because of the internet and pornography and all of the things that are associated with that. Sexual abuse can occur not only against children, against minors, against women who are not married, but sexual abuse can even occur and uh, within marriages, when uh, one partner is forced to have a sexual relation or forced to engage in activities that are offensive to them. And, and so sexual abuse takes, uh, takes that form. But, but another form of sexual abuse that perhaps is spoken of in the Word of God is the withholding of the conjugal rights. It can be a form of sexual abuse. 
and that is spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 in particular there. And so we have abuse that, that comes in different forms that, that manifests itself sometimes with the physical, sometimes with words, sometimes with devious action, and, and sometimes just, you know, because we do not supply the needs by neglecting or in some way seeking to control another from the economic standpoint. And I'm sure this morning that we could talk about it and break it down even further and, and deal with these uh, issues in a, in a different way. But I want you to think about a passage of Scripture that's found in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And it's one that a lot of times, or may perhaps maybe have never associated with abuse, but it makes a point that I want us to grasp here as we begin our study of abuse. The Bible says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. How many times have we heard that passage? Have we read through that passage? And we, we know it by heart. We, we sometimes talk about it, you know, that, that they stop the little children from coming to them. And, and, you know, we need to bring the little children in, in vacation Bible schools and we need to provide for the young people. But it's not that I want us to get that point. It's the reaction of Jesus that I want you to see right here. The, the strong language that is used in regard to this minor little thing when they simply stop the children from being able to have access to Jesus. Did you catch what he says there in that passage? The Bible says Jesus was indignant, is the way the English Standard Version play, uh, puts it. He was indignant. And if you look that up in, in the Scriptures, look the word up that's translated indignant. It, it's pretty eye-opening. The King James and the New King James simply says he was much displeased or greatly displeased. But, but about every other translation, I went through and looked at them, they, each one of them has the idea, the concept of he was indignant with his disciples. Now, if Jesus was indignant, because his disciples would not allow children to come to him, how do you suppose he must feel when he sees the abuse and neglect that's inflicted upon so many young people today? You know, we have a reaction, don't we? We have a reaction. What was your reaction to the four instances of the things that, that I mentioned at the beginning of this lesson? You probably had some compassion for the children, perhaps even tears welled up in your eyes that, that someone could be mistreated in such a way, but, but then you began to think about the abuser. And you became perhaps indignant as well because of what someone was willing to do to a little child. Wouldn't you just like to take a child abuser out into the woods for a little while? You know, two went in and one came out of the woods. That kind of thing. It's sort of the way that we feel when we see someone who would mistreat someone else. Someone especially who is, who is so incapable 
of taking care of themselves or defending themselves against abuse. Now, obviously, this morning, we can't learn everything there is to know about abuse in one 30-minute lesson. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you look at your sheet on the back of the bulletin this morning, you're going to find that you're not going to fill in all of the blanks because as I have studied through this lesson, it kept growing. And so we're going to start the lesson this morning. We're going to continue the lesson tonight, and we're going to finish the lesson next Sunday morning because it just keeps on expanding and growing and getting bigger and bigger because there are a lot of issues, a lot of things that we need to look at. So you won't get to finish up your blanks this morning. If you'll bring it back tonight, you'll get a couple more of the blanks. And then Sunday, next Sunday, uh, not only will we have those blanks that are left over from today and tonight, but we'll also have a few additional blanks. And so as you think about that, we won't be able to learn, but we can learn some things from the Word of God. And I think we should. And I think a lot of what we need to learn is contained in the Old Testament, especially in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter number 13. As we read of a case of abuse perpetrated by a brother, a stepbrother, against a stepsister. And what we want to do is briefly analyze this morning and over the next two lessons this particular passage to see patterns and things that are related to abuse. And so we'll spend some time doing that. Now as we begin our thoughts in regard to that this morning, we'll limit to the first, uh, the first one, the first character, if you will, in this uh, particular instance. But as we start thinking about abuse, we start thinking about learning about it, we need to learn something about the abused. In cases of abuse, we have to consider the one who is being abused. In the case that we're looking at first here in our text in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13, as James read this morning during our scripture reading, we read about King David's beautiful daughter by the name of Tamar. And it's interesting that the Bible chooses the words that it does. God, in His infinite wisdom limited the amount of information that we have. You know, there are a lot of questions that we would like answered, but it's also amazing that God would provide little details concerning things sometimes that, that, that if we're not looking, that maybe we, we miss. But it, in this case, <coughs> the Bible is very, very specific in verse number 1 in speaking about Tamar, and the Bible says... She was beautiful. But let's jump straight ahead this morning into what we read in our text in verses 10 through 14. And let's think about the attack itself that takes place. Let's think about what happens here. If you remember what James read, we have a brother and a sister, brother and a half-sister. Uh, the Bible speaks about how that the, the brother is sick and we understand that the half-sister is preparing him food and she brings the food to him and he basically takes her by the hand. He wants to have a sexual relation with her. She refuses and he rapes her. And that's the attack in, in a nutshell. But as we <coughs> think about that attack this morning that we read about, in those few verses, there are some things that we need to note 
in regard to it. It helps us to understand about abuse. It helps us to understand, especially in regard this morning to the one who is abused, the one who has been abused. So what are some of the things that we need to note? Let's note, first of all, that Amnon and Tamar were alone. They were alone in the the room, in the bedroom, as it were. Uh, If you go back to verse number 8, James didn't read this. Uh, Basically, the whole chapter is, it deals with the story and the after effects of it, leading up to it, and then the after effects of it. But Amnon and Tamar were in Amnon's house, according to verse number 8. And Amnon, being the son of the king, had servants in his house, but the ones who were attending to him, uh, they were around him, they were in his bedroom, and according to verse number 9, he sends them out of the room. He he says, you know, uh, go on about your business, basically, do something else, get out of here, stay out of here. And, And so he sends them out. And then, according to verse number 10, when Tamar comes to his house... He asked her specifically to bring the food into the chamber, into the bedroom, as James read. I'm not sure which translation he was reading from this morning, but, but he asked her to bring the, uh, the food into the chamber, into the bedroom. And, and so here we have Amnon and Tamar who were alone together. You know, that's when most attacks happen, when people are alone whether it be a sexual nature or whether it be a, a, a physical attack or whether it be a, 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 a verbal attack against someone, it's generally taking place when no one else is around. There are no others to defend them. And so it's important when we are talking to our children and raising them up, and you've heard it for uh, years now don't go with strangers into uh, you know into their car or into their house and when we go on campaign and and we take the young people we always try to send them out in groups of four and they have groups of two who are door knocking and one of the things that we always specify do not go into the house because we do not want anyone to be abused attacked in any way hurt in any way but it happens most of the time. Sometimes it happens in public. Sometimes people are arrested for abusing children in public. But it's not as often that abuse takes place. There, there is more abuse that takes place out of the eyes of people than there are in the eyes when, when people can see. And so always remember that. They were alone. That's one of the things that, that we need to know. Before Amnon could carry out his plan. He got her into a place where he could perpetrate the acts upon her that he wanted to accomplish. But secondly this morning, not only do we note that Amnon and Tamar were alone, we also note that Amnon tried to persuade Tamar. Look again at verse number 11. In verse 11 it says, But when she brought them near uh, near him to eat, He took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. He grabbed her by the hand, but he also asked her. You might even say he asked her nicely to have a sexual relation with him. He he appealed to her, if you will. 
And a lot of times that's what abusers will do. They will appeal to someone. You ever heard the old story of, uh, uh, of a stranger offering candy to a child to encourage or entice them? And that's what he's doing here. He, he's persuading. But, but at the same time, if you jump on ahead a few years into the teen years, you sometimes have an old boy who is dating a girl and, and he tells her how much he loves her so that he can have his way with her and abuse her, if you will, in an ungodly way. You see, sometimes people who are abusers can be sweet and nice and influential and encouraging. And it seems that he, first of all, that was his first tactic, is to try to persuade his sister to have the relationship with him. But thirdly, as we note some other things here, we note that Tamar resisted. Verse number 12, she said, No, my brother. She said, No. You know, you hear a lot about that in the news and when someone says no, it means no. And there have even been court cases in rape in, in recent years that, that, well, the girl said no, but, but really she meant yes. And those kind of things that have been litigated in court and all the, uh, the, the news that have been associated with that. But sometimes even when you resist the abuser, it does not stop them. It does not stop the beating. It does not stop the verbal abuse. Tamar resisted. She said no. But that brings us to the next point. Not only did she say no, but she tried to reason with her brother, or stepbrother, we should say. Again, in uh, uh, verse number 13, notice what the Bible says. Uh, she speaks about her shame. She said, As for me, where would I carry that? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And then she says, Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. In other words, there were some laws that were preventing them from, from being together. And, and she, it seems, was even willing to, to submit herself to him in a lawful way if he just would not attack her. And sometimes that's the way uh, abused folks are. They, they are willing to submit to a lot of things, reason with uh, the person who is abusing them. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it good. But she tried to reason. Now, the fact is Amnon was unreasonable. He was unwilling to listen. And that's the way it is with most abusers. They, they, unless they hit bottom, they're unwilling to listen. But that brings us to the last point here of things to note. Amnon raped her anyway. She resisted. Uh, she tried to reason with him, but he raped her anyway. He carried through with his evil plan. Well... All of that needs to be remembered when we're thinking about abuse, when we're teaching our children to, to, to uh, avoid situations where they might be abused, when we ourselves perhaps find our own selves in situations like that. But what was the effect of the rape? What was the effect of the, the attack upon, upon Tamar? Well, 
Let's look at two or three things before we close our lesson this morning. Then it'll be yours. Number one, Tamar begged him, please do not violate me. That's found there in uh, chapter 13. And, and when uh, he begins to speak, uh, she begins to speak to him in verse number 12. Do not violate me. The word violate is interesting. It's translated in a number of different ways in the Old Testament. Some of the words by which it's translated are afflicted. Uh, it's translated by the word humiliate. Translated by the word humble. Translated by the word broken. And those are, those are the ways that it's most often translated in the Old Testament. Afflict, humiliate, humble, broken. People are often broken down by abuse. She's not simply saying to him, okay, please don't, please don't rape me from the standpoint of I don't want to have a sexual relationship with her. Consider what you're going to do. A person broken down. Please do not violate me. Humble me before you. That's the effect that it has on a lot of people. How many have you seen who have undergone abuse, who have been broken people, whose spirit has been broken because of things that have been said to them? Please do not violate me. But then not only did she say, do not violate me, she asked, where could I carry my shame? That's one of the things that she said when she was seeking to reason with him. In verse number 13, where could I carry my shame? Shame is uh, most often translated in the Old Testament by the words disgrace, by the word reproach, even by the word taunt. Where could I carry my shame? People who've been abused often feel dirty, disgraced, and bear shame, not because of their own actions, but because of the actions of another person. They feel unworthy, and they, they cannot seem to overcome that. Therefore, it leads to that first thing that we talked about, that idea of the violation, the being broken. And so the Bible says, she said, where could I carry my shame? But thirdly, as we look at Tamar, it's what happens to her after the attack that we're told. Uh, when you go on down, continue reading, you find that she uh, tears her beautiful robe, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, she puts dust on her head. She meets her brother Absalom. And the Bible speaks about the interaction between them. And again, we'll talk about that in a later uh, session. But as she, she herself uh, is, we're going to put it in quotation marks, air quotes right now, comforted by her brother Absalom, he takes her into his house. And the Bible says that Absalom, the full brother, full brother of David, had his son Absalom and Tamar. They were full brother and sister. He takes her into his house, and the Bible says Tamar lived a desolate woman. A desolate 
woman. The word desolate, as used in the Old Testament, means devastate. Destitute. Destroyed. Wasted. You see, the Bible says that for the rest of her life, here is a woman who lives a desolate, devastated, destitute, destroyed, wasted life. The effect was ongoing for years to come. Why was she so desolate? Why was she so devastated? Here's one thing that we need to understand. Virginity in the Old Testament, especially in the Hebrew culture, was something that was much to be prized. Without it, a woman had a hard time getting a husband. It's hard for us, I think, to understand so much in our society because it's not prized like it used to be. And that needs to change. But here's a woman who, without her virginity, would have a hard time in that culture being able to have a husband and therefore have children of her own. No husband, no children, not much of a life, and especially for a woman in those days. You see, it's not like it is today where women go get a job and earn money and have the kinds of things, you know, that are, that are good in life. A woman in that day was quite dependent upon her husband. And if she is robbed of that because her chastity has been robbed from her, her life is going to be tough, to say the least. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, there's an interesting passage found in the Old Testament, an interesting law that God makes. There the Bible says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, in other words, engaged or married, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now on the, on the surface of that, it sounds awfully cruel. It sounds like, hey, a rapist gets to marry his victim. And in essence, they would get to. It doesn't say that they have to. But, but what is the point? Although the, the, the woman is not forced to marry her rapist, God made a law that ensured that she would be financially cared for for the rest of her life. Her desolation would be eased. In other words, the rapist was responsible for her care for the rest of her life didn't happen in this case, and again, we'll talk more about that later. Complicating this case was the fact that it was a, an incestuous relationship which was forbidden. And so when we look at it, she is left. doesn't mean that she didn't have good days. It doesn't mean that, that she sat in a rocking chair with a shawl around her and tears streaming down her eyes for the rest of her life. 
with no quality of life whatsoever. She was the daughter of a king living in the house, if you will, of another prince. And so she wasn't destitute as far as finances were concerned. She was cared for in that way, but she was robbed of some of the rich blessings of life. And that's what happens when people sometimes are abused. And I want you to think about this before we close. Her situation was mishandled by those who were around her. And as a result of that, it contributed to her desolate life. But how tragic is it? How tragic is it that in cases of abuse, sometimes the actions of other people are so taken, I guess you might say, that they continue to hurt. The evil deeds hurt the one who is abused, but even the actions of others hurt as well. And so, here it is, she is one who undergoes such a tragedy. And we feel for her, and we understand and we know that she went through so much and it affected her for the rest of her life. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who understands? A God who sent His Son that He could bind up the heart of the brokenhearted, even in situations of abuse. Tonight we'll talk about the abuser. We'll see some things in regard to him, her abuser, that, that we need to think about and consider uh, seriously. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been abused by another person, but you have been abused by the devil. He's taken advantage of you through your temptation, encouraged you to sin, and as a result of that, you've been separated, left desolate from God. If you're here this morning, you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, putting your Lord on, on in baptism, then we encourage you to do that. Your sins can be washed away. You can go home and live a life of a Christian and one day go home to the ultimate home, heaven. Maybe you're here this morning and there's something amiss in your life that you need corrected in a public way. If that's the case, then would you come right now as together we stand and sing.